Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. How close are we to cyber war? What does cyber war look like? And if a cyber war is happening, how can we defend ourselves? There's a perception that cyber war is an issue only for governments, not for industry or for enterprises. But that is wrong, according to our guest for this episode. With a 40-year career in security, Richard Benham is uniquely placed to assess the risks of cyber war and put them in context. After working in banking and finance and then cross-border policing, Benham started what he describes as his third career in cyber and digital security, going on to become the world's first professor of cybersecurity management. He's also worked in the military with the National Cyber Awards and is patron of the National Museum of Computing at Bletchley Park. And he's also a best-selling novelist. I started by asking him to give us his definition of cyber war. I think before we get to the definition of cyber warfare, we need the definition of cyber because uh, that uh, word in itself means so many things to so many different people. And uh, in both speaking to uh, company board directors and military leaders, um, most of them have a different view of what it is. A lot of them view it as something to do with IT, something to do with IT security, uh, hackers. They're not quite sure. But if we but if we take a step back, and, I, and I've experienced this with a lot of students, my first question to my students is, what do you mean by cyber? And we get to a point where perhaps there is no proper definition. It becomes more of a euphemism. And it's a euphemism to describe where human meets technology. And, and it's either a point or a time where human meets technology. And if we look at the world and how it's developing, um, we can't really also define what is now human and what is technology with AI and some of the um, computing capacity that's out there. But also that particular gap that we might describe as cyber is getting broader and wider with a lot of gray stuff in between. So assuming that we that we use that as some sort of uh, definition as to what cyber may, may mean, if we look at cyber warfare, um, that is really how do we utilize uh, an enemy's uh, lack of knowledge um, to gain some sort of advantage over them? And that can be uh, warfare that can be warfare in the strictest sense of the word, which is to incapacitate um, another, uh, either organization, country, um, whoever we deem the enemy to be. So when we consider cyber warfare, um, warfare can take many, um, many forms. It can either be between uh, nation states or it can be between uh, organizations, government or agencies against individuals. Um, I think warfare is quite a broad brush term now, uh, particularly when we, um, when, when we refer to cyber. Um, the, the big challenge with cyber warfare is that it's an emerging um, tool that's being able to use and one that's uh, that's accelerating greatly. Um, we've seen the, the attacks on um, Ukraine in particular from Russia, which have been very visible um, and have been very much um, there to, uh, to act as some sort of deterrent or threat. Um, but behind that, um, we have other nation states and other individuals who, um, who attack um, organizations, other countries, uh, for other reasons. Um, if we look at China, and China comes out time and time again, they tend to be far more 
tactical, far more careful about how they uh, attack. They play a very, very much a long-term game uh, and a very subtle game. Um, and again, we see that popping up now. There's legislation currently going through um, the House of uh, the House of Commons through government to be considered to look at the threat um, that perhaps Chinese acquisitions of British and European assets presents, um, and that's certainly been in the news this week. If we um, if we look at um, other organisations uh, around the world, those that perhaps don't necessarily want to do us harm, um, we could we could look at cyber warfare um, as being uh, for financial gain and economic gain. And again, there seems to be other parties involved who are able to um, declare war or what we would perceive to be war on us, but it's an economic war uh, and it's a war designed um, to take money from us and put it in the coffers of others. That can be either for personal financial gain, for organised crime, uh, or to fund uh, a nation state. And again, stories of these things are, are starting to emerge. So cyber, we know that cyber warfare is a real thing because all the governments around the world are spending tens of millions, even hundreds of millions, even billions of pounds putting in place defences. Here in the UK, we have the National Cyber Security Centre. We have the new National Cyber Force in the north of England, which is a collaboration between uh, various agencies and the MOD. Uh, and that will be a serious capability for the United Kingdom to effectively defend itself. One of the more as interesting aspects um, of that is that it, within the legislation that allows them to operate um, and if people Google this, they can see that there is um, a capability um, for Britain to effectively uh, launch an attack, a cyber attack on another state if it feels that it's under threat. Why is this different to normal warfare? Um, simply because of the speed. Um, there won't be time for effectively a, a chain of command to go up and down to declare war like there has been with, with traditional warfare. It will be instant. If there's an attack, on our national critical infrastructure, so say our electricity uh, network, our water network, um, even our banking, um, then the response has to be clinical and it has to be quick or else um, we're fighting um, a rearguard action and that involves a whole lot of contingency planning, civil unrest and all the other consequences that may follow after a period of time. So um, that's... that's and that's really the, the bit of cyber warfare that makes it different to normal warfare. Um, it's far more of a subtle game. It's an unseen game that's going on behind the scenes, um, but it does exist. Uh, and its threat is as realistic or as damaging as normal warfare. Now, there is there is a school of thought out there, and it's one that um, I know that um, the military is a little bit sensitive about, and that is that... Um, we spend huge amounts of money on nuclear weapons, as do um, various other nation states as well. And that is our ultimate deterrent. There is a feeling that, that the cyber warfare, the cyber capabilities will overcome that. And that in some ways, the ability to launch a nuclear weapon using systems will be overtaken by our ability to defend against it. So what I mean by that is someone intends to launch a nuclear weapon. Um, they could possibly do it manually. Um, but all, all, of these, all of these things require quite sophisticated systems to be able to do them. Um, and what may happen is that, that the, our ability to, um, to nullify these makes nuclear weapons redundant. Um, and therefore, 
the current military structures that are in place will have to change and would have to change quite quite fast, as will the funding models. Um, and then we're going to be left with um, cyber warfare almost being the only capability that's needed to defend a nation state. Now, that's quite controversial. And there are many military people who say, well, it's a transition that may not happen. We still need boots on the ground. And I think there's, there's an element of that that's absolutely true. The, the real challenge we all face, and particularly um, government and military leaders, is, is the pace of change. It's the speed at which it's changing. So, so a good example of that is, is our nuclear submarines that we currently have. They were designed um, and built over five to 10-year um, programs. But even in the five to 10-year so that we've just recently seen um, where our latest fleet of nuclear submarines have been built, and we've seen that technology has changed, that the threats... Um, to both the technology held on the submarine um, will be will be completely different, and therefore, how do you how do you build military capability that can keep up with the pace the pace of change? So, those are the problems. That's the that's the scenario. The answers um, the answers have to be um, to train more people in the areas of technology, and that be that uh, AI, be that uh, what we deem to be cyber. Um, and it's interesting. The AI is the in word at the moment, but but AI is just one one facet of cyber. We have we have quantum computing that's um, that, that's also increasing the capability exponentially. Um, we have um, we have bioscience that is that is um, that is going that is expanding also. Um, and all of these things come to merge together. And when we go back to the original definition of what cyber means, um, or what I deem cyber to mean, which is where um, you know, human meets technology, we can see that, that all of these things are changing and our relationship as humans with technology um, is going through through a radical change. So with regard to cyber warfare, again, um, I, I, I've also been looking at, and I've even written a novel about, um, the, the use of uh, super soldiers. So how do we enhance soldiers using technology? Is it with exoskeletons? Is it with... Um, injections of nano nano um, technology to make them faster um, to make them stronger to make them more resilient or do we simply go for uh, robots on the ground um, using artificial brains again uh, to create the perfect soldier so all of these things used to exist in the realms of science fiction but you know even as you switch on the news today and we hear that you know the, the, the human brain, they're able to replicate the human brain digitally. Um, and we look at the advances and, uh, and the panic that AI is causing. Um, I think the whole, the whole cyber warfare thing is, um, is definitely going to change um, and it's going to be a much more subtle war. Um, it won't be blatant. Um, and I think we'll look in a couple of years time back at tanks and uh, guns and everything. And we'll suddenly realize how, how antiquated they look. Um, and again, that, that will upset quite a few military purists because there is a, there is a history with that. Um, but you could almost see a time when, um, when cyber warfare is just, um, it's just almost bringing peace to the world in the sense that the balance and checks are so vast um, that actually um, we, we actually have, have have lasting peace. Now, the flip side to that is with AI, and one of the issues they're talking about is can you launch AI attacks um, against each other, against, say, nation states or different parties? Um, the answer is clearly yes. Um, 
but then do they overtake us in a in a terminator style scenario and that's another thing that's appeared in the press there is always that risk um but on the other hand because we know of the risk we can manage the risk now and i think that um whilst people may be may be scared about this new um style of warfare i have a i have a feeling it might bring greater security than what we currently have at the moment well the potential there is to create a strategic balance and there is an analogy to mutually assured destruction and the strategic balance that was achieved with nuclear weapons there is some discussion now among researchers and politicians as to whether that balance has broken down or is breaking down as we see proliferation of nuclear technologies and potentially a willingness to use them at a lower threshold. That's probably a discussion for another time. But if we go back to the cyber aspect of this and that idea of achieving balance, let's look again at what's happened in Ukraine. So we're now at the point where we record this episode. We're now on day 508 of the current Russian invasion of Ukraine, so the 2022 version. We haven't as yet, or at least some researchers argue, that we haven't as yet seen the large scale moving over into cyber war that they'd anticipated. Yes, there have been some cyber attacks. There has been attempts to disable infrastructure by both parties. And there's been some reasonably well publicised assistance given to Ukraine to defend themselves. Microsoft in particular have been public about what they've done to help protect Ukrainian assets. And one of the reasons that Apparently, we've not seen the level of incidents that was anticipated is that the Ukrainians were able to essentially pull a switch and decouple themselves from the Internet, at least for some of their capabilities. The other aspect, which is perhaps one that's more immediately relevant to listeners who are not in defence themselves, is that there's actually a limited resource of zero days and other attack vectors available to you. And quite oftentimes those attacks depend on opportunities. So you would launch an attack, and a cyber criminal gang will do this, they'll launch an attack because they've found a vulnerability which they can exploit. They're not necessarily things that you can keep in an armoury ready for the point when you need them. At least that's what some people have said. I don't know what you think and whether you agree with that, Richard. Oh, I don't agree with that totally. I think that um, there, there's always perception on what you see and then there's always what you don't see. I think the the example you give them where Ukraine had to switch off its uh, internet capability, um, one, they, they're very fortunate to be able to do that. Uh, and I, in one of my books, I wrote about that as a defense, not against uh, cyber warfare, but against a um, um, another threat. Um, and uh, that in itself is a victory. I, I, I would suggest if you're able to get a nation state to switch off its internet and, and power down it, its lines of communication using the internet, that works in the short term, but in the long term, you, you, because we have such a digital dependency on that for every other aspect of our life, you would almost cast that as that is a victory in itself. I, I also think there are many more players behind the scenes, um, not just Ukraine and, uh, and, and the Russians involved. Um, there is this sort of impasse being created. You know, if you turn this off, I'll turn that off. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et you you've also got to remember that the Russians have a huge stockpile of weapons and a huge military, and by not using them, um, it creates um, you know it, it almost you know, creates their redundancy. So so to be seen to be using them, even if it was um, even if it was only a minor part, could also act as a distraction for for longer term threats. Ukraine's been under attack for for many many years, and and in fairness to 
to Ukraine, um, they've become quite sophisticated at defending against attacks um, long before the rest of us in some ways, because they were coming under hard attacks from, from Russia um, many years ago, over a decade ago. Um, so I, I, I agree with you in, in some ways, but I don't. Um, I think there is a cyber war going on, um, and I think it's far more sophisticated and far more damaging. Now, Ukraine has been able to go back to basics um, in terms of it's been able to operate on a practical level. My worry for the rest of Europe and the developed world is that we are so, so dependent on technology now. You know, we, we don't even use banknotes and coins anymore. You know, we don't we don't really trade on, on a local level uh, like we ever used to. And I think that for us, the consequences of either losing the internet in this country or even for a short time would be catastrophic. So I think that um, I think that that is a realistic armory. Do I think there are a whole load of um, instant weapons that they can use? Yes, I do. Um, I just think it's not in anyone's interest to currently use them. Um, the Russians still rely on the banking system, the global banking system, to survive, and therefore it's not in their interests. So somebody asked me in my policing days, and when I used to do this, why do terrorists not attack London? And that was before 7-7, unfortunately. But one of the main reasons was, of course, that that, that an awful lot of money is stored there. Um, and so there is, there is this reason that the other reason we, we, we don't get attacked or they don't use their, their weapons is it, it will be self-defeating. There's also an awful lot of Russian um, money in, in, in London and Chinese money in London. So to their propensity to attack our banking system there, um, they don't really have an incentive at the moment. But that's not to say that they couldn't. It's just to say that they, you know, it's not in their interest to do so. And there's always going to be an argument in keeping a reserve, keeping some capability back in case you need it and in case you do need to escalate. And cyber shouldn't be or is not likely to be any different to any other form of weapon system in that respect. No, that's right. And, um, you know, you've mentioned tactical nuclear weapons as a short term result. You know, again, you know, again, there's this probably little point, And I think it applies in the cyber world as well. There's no point taking down someone's national infrastructure if they're just going to do the same to you. Um, and, um, you know, so to, so to my mind, there is there is a definite similarity between our world today and tomorrow. It's just I don't think it will cost so much money. And I think, um, you you know, you won't actually have the nuclear um consequences well i hope i don't hope we don't anyway but if we go back to the question about strategic balance so is that something where for example the national cyber force is playing a role where other government investments are playing a role so actually they're they're raising the cost of a cyber attack to the point where the adversary may not wish to bear that cost anymore and therefore they won't do it yeah, that's correct. I mean, I'm not party to to the National Cyber Force um, in the sense that um, I sit as an observer of it, nothing more, nothing less. Um, whilst I was uh, a military officer um, helping to put, put that together uh, in the very, very early days, um, I think I think you're spot on there. I think the I think the amount of investment going in the the attack capability that they'll undoubtedly have just acts as a deterrent again. So I, I absolutely believe that. And we and we look at all nation states. We look at Israel. We look at um, America, uh, and we look at uh, some of the other European states. They are all investing so heavily in cyber. Um, and the one thing you can always say if governments invest heavily in something like this, um, it's because it works and because you know there's obviously a real threat and a real answer. Um, it's a bit like military spending. You know, they spend on it because because the threat exists. Do you feel the need to be some demilitarized areas and 
again, we've seen a number of not necessarily state-backed, but criminally backed attacks against healthcare systems. We also saw during COVID some of the cybercrime groups saying they wouldn't attack healthcare um, because of the the risk to life that that would cause, uh, which was interesting. Obviously, they didn't all do that. Some of them did still carry out attacks, and there have been some quite high-profile ones. But is there a case for having an equivalent of laws of war which say you do not attack civilians, you do not attack certain forms of infrastructure? Or, on the flip side, is our infrastructure now so tightly bound into the internet that, in fact... And we saw this you know, way back a number of years ago now with WannaCry, that an attack aimed at one part of the network is just going to affect other critical services anyway. And there's no way of stopping that from happening. Yeah, my, my, my view is that you need to defend your own networks and your own capability. I think relying on goodwill treaties and gestures is important. Of course it is. And I think between big nation states, you know, treaties and agreement are fine. But I think the reality is, it's like anything is um, is if you can do it in a sneaky way, and uh, cyber warfare allows, allows you to do things in a sneaky way through third parties, you know, through things that, that you possibly can't trace. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how much um, how much credence I would rely on it. I wouldn't be relying on somebody else's goodwill to say they're not going to attack our hospitals. I think the emphasis has to be that we have to put in place suitable defences to make sure that doesn't happen. Many of the Attacks we see, and you mentioned this earlier, down to our own vulnerabilities, our inability to to either patch things, as we say, or to repair things, or to put um, the latest technology in place to defend against it. You know, and that requires huge investment from from many organisations. Um, healthcare is a primary one. You you, it's very difficult to take away the primary motive of of, of money. Um, because you know, cyber crime, as opposed to warfare, is is a very lucrative way of making money. Um, because literally, you hold someone as a as a hostage to fortune. You cannot be traced. You cannot be identified. We now have cryptocurrencies that clearly allow um, the transaction of of, of recognised um, financial tools to be able to um, to pay them. Um, and for me, that that's a complete recipe. And I, I think there is a role for law enforcement. I think the dark web needs to be looked at very closely, where a lot of these transactions take place. I think the availability of the um, of stuff on the internet now, and by that I mean this this idea that we have that the internet should be free and open and anything can be downloaded. Um, I think is clearly wrong. I think in its early days, it was a, it was a wonderful ideal and absolutely the right thing to have open and fetid access. But the security consequences now are so great with our dependency that I think, you know, laws need to be put in place. We need to start regulating how um, how the internet is used. Which brings me on to the next question: Is will the internet even exist? Um, and I'm not convinced it will. My my vision will be that each country will have its own internal internet or intranet or whatever term we want to describe it, its own network. And uh, we'll see the internet fade. And again, a lot of people don't agree with me on that. They think it's too far gone to change. But I, I, I think it will start to become irrelevant. And what you'll see above it is nations building their own internets or their own networks and then controlling the links between other people's networks. Now, the dark web exists and they tried to shut that down and it didn't work. Um, how do you stop people from setting up their own networks? It's very difficult. But I think over time, I think the security aspect, the need to defend our own countries um, will lead us to 
to that sort of model being being adopted. Um, the other big threat, of course, is uh, what's called peer to peer, um, um, and that uh, and that effectively is where you can communicate, say, with another device. And the best example of that is phone to phone, mobile phone to mobile phone, where you don't actually need to go through a third party cloud party network. So the two phones communicate with each other. You can either transact money, information, or whatever but it's subject to no regulation because it's literally going from device to device um, between the two devices. Um, and that again presents a risk because you'll see that um, certainly uh, in criminality um, and possibly warfare, you'll see that capability being used a lot more to bypass any regulations or anybody looking at the, um, at the bigger internet or the bigger systems and networks that, that exist. Um, the positive side um, is with that, of course, is it, it brings um, more options to underdeveloped countries where where they don't have sophisticated mobile phone networks. So I think from from that point of view, that's that's something that will happen. But again, it will be a, almost unregulated in my view. What do organisations do at the individual level, though, to enhance their protection against these type of attacks? And I know some people say you can't and you have to rely on government to to come in and fix things often people say that when they've been a victim and they haven't taken sufficient steps. Um, but if we look for, at one recent example, which is the, the Move It attack. Now, again, attribution is notoriously difficult in this industry. We know that. But there are pretty strong links to Russian organised crime here. We don't at this point know whether that's state-backed, state-sanctioned, simply the state turning a blind eye. But the impact on commerce of that particular attack was significant. There'll be others like it. So what would you advise boards to do to protect themselves because ultimately the government isn't going to turn up and say we can fix this for you so there are two aspects here the, the first one is that um, we have the ncsc in the united kingdom which was set up just over five years ago and um, that's still evolving as a as an agency to to help business um, and one of the criticisms of business is that it doesn't give enough help um, and I think that that will come in time, but but the threats are are, are happening now. Um, if I'm a board director, and I have been a board director, my priority is not on cybersecurity until it becomes an event. It, it is just a risk to be managed. And unless someone can convince me that risk is real, am I going to put huge sums of money into, um, into it? It's a bit like buying insurance. The current feeling of, um, of businesses and organizations is, is that they'll talk They'll, they'll talk the talk on it. They'll actually say, yes, of course, we believe in it, but they actually don't do it. Now, there have been two two aspects to the threats to businesses that have emerged. One, historically, was always the attack to the IT system. Now, IT vendors and those that generally outsource their IT um, have the security uh, built in. And we're seeing more and more, whilst there's a vulnerability of perhaps putting your data onto the cloud, the, the IT providers, the managed service providers, have become quite sophisticated at offering a security package. And in many ways, that, that, is, that has worked really well in, in, in protecting businesses without them having to worry about it. And they've made it uh, an addition to, to their IT costs. The threat, the, the, and, and this is sort of brought to the fore, the other threat that we were facing, which was the human one, which is how do you stop your staff from doing silly things? How do you stop them from clicking on spoof emails? How do you stop them from sending false invoices? How do you just make them aware 
that really this is something that they need to look at. Uh, and again, we we see a plethora of, of staff awareness courses, employee awareness courses coming through. Some of the bigger organizations run them as standard. Um, and again, we've reached a, a sort of maturity on that where, where there's definitely a marketplace and an understanding. But there are still a few two businesses actually doing it. Um, it's not statutory, you see. And again, I would... In answer to your question, I would suggest the government needs to make um, uh, matters to do with cybersecurity on businesses more statutory. And the two examples I'd like to see is compulsory um, staff awareness training driven by you'll only get insurance on your business insurance on your business if you undertake this. Um, and I think you've almost got to force it through like any other legislation. The other the other big thing I'd like to see, and I'm really surprised the government's not done this, um, and I know that there's been conversations about it, is to make it a statutory obligation in the annual reports of any company that you have to have a risk assessment on your on your cyber um, on your cyber position. Um, and so when the auditors come in, they also undertake um, a cyber audit on you. Um, because, again, that would then bring immediately to the attention of the board the fact that they have to do it just as they have to do um, all of the statutory obligations when, when presenting their um, their annual reports. Um, and, and, you know, the insurers are also behind a little bit on this. They all know cyber risks are risk. They're, they're finding it difficult to quantify it. Um, and to be able to offer policies in place that mitigate it against it. So again, there needs to be a radical uh, look at that. But by, I think the instruments that the government and the businesses need are one legislation and two, the insurance market to help steer it as well. It all involves costs to small businesses. Um, and at the big end, some of the big companies will be able to absorb that. Small SMEs, startup businesses, face many, many challenges. Uh, and unfortunately, extra spending on things is not, um, particularly on the IT security, is not always top of the list. Um, so again, to make it a statutory requirement, um, I think um, is probably a given. Uh, I don't think there's any other way that we can that we can force businesses to do it. And that's going to be unpopular with small businesses. Um, um, but I think that that's, that's the way. The other sector, I think, that is that is vulnerable, and I gave an interview to the BBC in 2017 that went, uh, went global, where I criticised all the banks publicly, and I hadn't expected to have such a reaction, because I said they were woefully un, unprepared for. Um, a cyber attack, and this was back in 2017. And, and I, I expected to get quite a few people um, reply to that, saying, "No, you know, this mad professor is being silly, and you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about." And I know that there was over a million downloads in one day, and uh, I didn't get a single person come back and say, "No, that's not true." In fact, I got invited into all the all the boards of all the major banks where they sort of acknowledged that fact. Um, and I'd like to think in a small way that that, that article helped change, uh, made the banking, just, just made them up their game a bit and perhaps has, has saved us a little bit. Um, I, I think that would be arrogant of me to even, even begin to think that. But I do think that that conversation needed to be had at that time. And I think we're facing the same with small businesses now. I think there needs to be an open conversation to say, well, let's all grow up. You know, these, this is now a, a problem. It is a real risk. We need to deal with it properly, except you know, not leaving businesses to manage themselves. So in answer to your comment, the businesses, they have to protect themselves. They have to take the responsibility, but ultimately government also has to take responsibility as well. We've probably gone as far as we can with persuasion and the nudge theory on this. So legislation needs to come in. And I think that also has the 
systemic benefit that quite a lot of the attacks that we've seen over the last few years have arisen or been possible because of unpatched vulnerabilities that are known. And it's simply that people have not undertaken those steps. And we're much more aware now of the impact of electronic and digital supply chains and the fact that that one weak spot potentially creates a vulnerability for organizations that would otherwise be in a much better position to protect themselves. And again, that's where if the comparison is made with other things such as having to have you know, health and safety legislation, compulsory business insurance for uh, employer liability, that type of thing. It creates that base level, doesn't it, if, if I understand what you're saying correctly, that actually by having legislation, we're ensuring that the minimum security is complied with. I think, you know, in fairness to the NCSC, uh, Cyber Essentials is a good start. It's got people to start to think about it. But if we look at the penetration of that throughout the business community, it's still way, way, way too low and has been for, for many years. So I think it needs to be a bit more... Um, yeah, I, I, as I said, I think legislation is timely for legislation now. Um, and I'm not a big one for government legislation because, you know, we are uh, a capitalist society that thrives on innovation. But but I do think that, um, yeah, the government does need to, to step in. And the biggest challenge there, and the government won't thank me for this, has, has been the lack of knowledge in government. Um, you know, as, as with every other sector, um, they've suffered from... Uh, a lack of uh, experience, knowledge in 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 the cyber sector, um, and I think we're all sort of learning as we go along. Admittedly, I've been learning a lot more than everybody else, um, but you can still see that we're learning and we're still trying to find out what the rules of the game are. So, um, so we will get there. My 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 worry, as probably everybody else, is is that we get there too slowly and that we get caught out. You know, can I see a time where the national grid goes down because we've been attacked by the Russians in, in the next five to 10 years? I can't say that I, I couldn't. Could I see a crash of the banking system by um, a bank being taken down and then contagion setting in? You can still say that, that that's very realistic as well. Um, the only positive on that, we looked at COVID and we looked at how we all went into lockdown and how that was controlled. Um, and, and you sort of think, well, yes, I think providing it's all managed properly and we have the right contingency plan in place, I think we can we can manage these things. But my worry has always been um, has been that these things happen and that there's no preparation in place. Um, there is no contingency planning. I don't know what the National Cyber Contingency Plan is. I know that there might be one. I know that um, um, I think Tom Tugan had set up a new um department to look at that but again my worry is that this all happens too late um and we just haven't got the right level of expertise or vision in there to be able to anticipate what's coming over the hill um because tomorrow's threat won't be one that we know know of today i suspect richard benham on why we should consider moving cyber defense measures to a statutory basis and on the need to have plans in place that are flexible, but resilient enough to handle both the threats we know and those that we don't. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll look at cyber threats against healthcare and especially the NHS. That will be live in two weeks' time. Until then, do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.